Welcome to the Everything Music Ed podcast. I'm your host, Tom Borning. In this podcast, we'll hear from educators, performing musicians, composers, conductors, and others about their experiences in learning, teaching, and performing music. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram to find out about upcoming episodes, and be sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the podcast on whatever platform you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, please feel free to email me at everythingmusiced at gmail.com. In today's episode, we talk with composer and conductor Sean O'Loughlin. As a composer and an arranger, Sean has written for young orchestras and bands, as well as professional symphonies and pops orchestras. As a conductor, he's led the Boston Pops Orchestra, the San Francisco Symphony, the Chicago Symphony, the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra, and countless others. He has orchestrated music for artists such as Sarah McLaughlin, Adele, Josh Groban, Pentatonix, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry, Kelly Clarkson, Jason Mraz, tons of people. And I hope you enjoy Sean O'Loughlin. from the news because it's just so negative and um, <clears throat> I just feel like I'm uh, you know yeah, what I mean no, I... so it's wow but then I miss stuff like that <laughs> I like I would assume I'd see that stuff like oh something <laughs> happened on Facebook and then I'll turn on the news well it wasn't quite a hurricane just a nasty it was, uh, storm, but it was wow. like a, it was a tropical storm but it came through uh, the Pacific so it hit it made landfall in Mexico like by Cabo and Sonata on the West Coast, and then it kind of crawled up the U.S. Southwest, and then right in the middle of it, around I guess around one o'clock yesterday, a five point something earthquake hit Ojai, which is <laughs> which is like forty five minutes from where we are. So we felt it pretty. Oh my good, but... <laughs> gosh! Wow, that's uh... yeah. People people were calling it a hurricane. <laughs> a hurricane! Oh my gosh! Well. Uh, so, all good. Oh, but it's good yeah, to see you. <laughs> thanks so much for uh, coming on. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I know we don't really know each other that well. We hung out for a couple of days many years ago at this point. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was yeah, Steve, it was Edwards, Steve right? Edwards, Yep. Steve Edwards um, yeah. was the high school band director. He took over after I was high school band director and I was curriculum coordinator at the time. Now Steve Steve is right, actually right. now the the fine arts department head in town, so that's really good. We have a we have a new oh, no high way. school band director, but uh, so it's really good. It's a a, de- a department head as opposed to a coordinator, and I could not bring myself to not teach anymore. You know, so I like, but he yeah. he's all in. He's like he has basically one class every other day, and then he is basically pushing paper and. Make, making sure the exactly, ship runs right, exactly, right which is super important so uh i'll give him that yeah in our in our district a similar thing happened the the band director who was here who i've become good friends with he um 
he was the high school director here maybe 15 years and then there was a need for a, a district's you know I don't know if it's necessarily department head, but he's kind of now the f central figure in terms of making choices um, and curriculum uh, choices, you know, bring in new teachers, et cetera. So it's, it, it was a position that wasn't there. They created for him. And so now there's some sense of direction, which I'm sure Steve is bringing, you know, to the district, which is so yep. needed. It's great. You know, it's, it's great. It's always good especially to, advocate. to have someone in your corner. I mean, that's, that's the big thing. Even, even when I yeah. was curriculum coordinator, I was not because I was a full-time teacher and that was just like a stipended position at, at the time, you know, there'd be a minute administrator of administrative meetings and I wouldn't be involved in them. So then these decisions would get made and all of a sudden I'm like, wait, what about this? What about that? Like you didn't even consider it. And right. it's because I wasn't at the <laughs> table, you know? So he's always at that table, which is huge for us. So, uh, but anyway, I definitely will. I am here with Sean O'Loughlin. First thing is, is all you stupid idiots. No, <laughs> all you stupid people that <laughs> thought it was O'Loughlin. No, it's O'Loughlin. It's the Gaelic pronunciation. I'm right, Sean, right? Yes. You are correct. Yeah, and I only know that because Sean corrected me uh, back in the day. <laughs> so, uh, uh, well, you're not the first. Yeah, you won't be the and last. And in my defense, sure. I went to school with a kid named Josh Laughlin, and that's how you pronounce it. So, yeah. but anyways, that, that is good to know. And I always say, you know, it's always funny, like another composer that you know, like. You're you're one of my top compo go to composers for um, for young band literature. Oh, thanks, Tom. And um, uh, but there's like it's like people always say, "How do you say this guy's name?" Brian Balmages, Balmages, Balmage. You know, or like <laughs> you know, uh, there's always there's always other, you know I've heard people say Frank Ticelli, Ticelli. How do we pronounce that? You know, it's always you want to hear it. You want to you want to know exactly from the horse's mouth how do you pronounce their name? So, but well, we all can't be Robert. Yeah, right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, Sean, t tell me a little bit about your musical upbringing in terms of what you remember about early music uh, education for you, and how it is. When did you? When did when did that bell go off? You'd be like, I want to go and I want to major in music. I'm pretty sure you, you at some point you went to New England Conservatory. I'm pretty sure I remember that part yeah. of it. But when did you decide you were going to major in music and all that stuff? But even before that, what was your growing up elementary, elementary music education like? Yeah, I had a, a unique um, school situation in the fact that our uh, elementary and junior high were all one school. So it was kindergarten through eighth grade. And I had the, you know, the real rare opportunity to have the same director from like summer of second grade when I started on the trumpet all the way through eighth grade and having that consistency. And he was so beloved. He just uh, passed away a, a couple of years ago, but um, was a lifetime friend and mentor to me in addition to starting me on the trumpet. And he was uh, Tony DeAngelis was his name, and maybe some of your listeners would know that name in the in the central New York area in Syracuse, New York, where I grew up. And he was a bassoonist in the symphony, 
Um, and he brought that love of orchestral music and Broadway and, and, you know, show tunes and everything to us at a very young level. So we were playing just great literature right off the start and albeit, you know, uh, level appropriate, you know, as, as you do, but he started us early, um, because he ran the, he ran the whole thing. He didn't have anyone to answer to. And, and he was just such a great teacher. And he was one of these guys that, you know, if you messed up, he would give you a hug and say, Hey, get back in there. Let's do it again. It wasn't, you know, this, uh, kind of put you down until you get it right. Um, attitude. And, uh, like I said, he was a life lifelong mentor and friend to me. And, um, so he got me going. And then once he, uh, <laughs> said, I can't teach him much more about the trumpet. You need to get someone who can teach you about the trumpet. And I started studying with, uh, John Rochella, who was the, uh, principal trumpet in the Syracuse symphony at the time. And, uh, he kind of, you know, mentored me all through high school. Um, and I kind of knew as I went through high school and my high school director was a, a great band director uh, named John Spillett at uh Solvay high school. And, um, you, you know, I, I knew it was something that came, I hate to say it like came easy to me, but it was something that was, um, you know, kind of a fastball down the middle for me. And I was a good student too. I got, you know, good grades, et cetera. But, but music was something that I could really lean into. And, um, and I found some great success, whether it be, you know, making all counties and all states and the like. Um, and then I was really fortunate. I was offered a, a full scholarship to uh, Syracuse University. And so I didn't have to pay anything for my undergrad degree, which was quite remarkable, as you know, in these, yeah. this day and age. Um, and so I was, a, I was a music ed major. And I, I, you know, I saw the effect that music teachers had on me and I wanted to kind of return that favor and, and, you know, pay it forward to the next generation. And then something, something funny happened away, happened along the way to the forum as a, as a musical goes. Right. And, and I got bit by the writing bug. And so I tested out of my freshman theory class for second semester and I had some space in my, in my, uh, schedule. And so I started taking composition lessons and uh, a wonderful teacher named Dan Godfrey was my, my first teacher. And, uh, and he kind of fostered me. And the first thing he did, cause I, you know, came in with a few little arrangements I did of John Williams themes. And, you know, the first thing he did was like, okay, I want you to write a piece for, he goes, pick two instruments. You don't know a whole lot about. And I was like, all right, flute and oboe. It was great. Let's do a flute and oboe duet. And no two measures in a row could have the same meter <laughs> and no two measures in a row could um, have any semblance to tonal harmony. So he just really shook the trees, so to say, and it made me think outside the box. And um, I don't write pieces like that very often because yeah. <laughs> nobody wants to hear them. Sure. <laughs> and, and, could, and nobody wants to play them because they're so, they're so damn hard to play. But um but it was a good exercise to expand my mind. And that's exactly what it was. It wasn't, you know, writing a performance piece. It was writing a piece as, a, as so an did exercise. You, did you and student teach as part of your undergrad too? Did you? Yeah. I did. Okay. I did, and, yeah. And the only reason why I say and, that, and you we'll know, get to this more later, is just because I feel like I didn't know that you had gotten an undergrad in music ed, which it makes a lot of sense because of how well you write pieces for young bands. It's like anybody can write, I don't want to say anybody, 
a, a composer, generally speaking, could write, you know, a grade four piece and higher and harder because they don't have to worry about the constraints of like, what can the students play? What's developmentally appropriate and all that exactly. stuff. So uh, yeah. it, it makes a lot of sense. It doesn't surprise me one bit uh, that that you had an education degree. Uh, so you got the writing bug, and you and that was at Syracuse. So then you gr- you graduated at Syracuse, Syracuse University, yeah. and then what happens happens there? Well, at at, at some point, uh, the focus for me uh, became music composition, and so I, I ended up taking enough credits as an undergrad to qualify as a dual major. So I actually have a a, a dual degree in, in music ed and composition, and then I wanted to pursue the the writing thing um, that was clearly becoming the path for me. And so I went to New England Conservatory for uh, graduate school. Now, I say that so easily, but it wasn't as easy to get into New England Conservatory. Um, in fact, I tried after my my senior year, and um, and I was waitlisted, and I was pretty crushed because I had v- taken a visit there and really fell in Join love with the Join the crowd school. on that one. I uh, was waitlisted for my grad I know, right? as well there. Uh, I was actually really proud of it. So then, <laughs> well, so I, I, and that's where the dual undergrad degree came because I really didn't want to start uh, a grad school experience somewhere else and then try to transfer in. I wanted it to be, cause it's only two years anyway, right. As a master's. So, um, so I, that's why I stayed at Syracuse for a fifth year, having already had a music ed degree. But like I said, I had enough credits to get a, a, a dual degree in composition. So I just had a couple more classes to take to fulfill that. And so that, that was the choice for me, which was a very awkward year. You know, you kind of said goodbye to your friends that you were with and, you know, they're moving on, but then, you know, here you are in this fifth year and thankfully they extended my scholarship. So that helped, uh, tremendously. But, um, so then I applied again, I had some new pieces and felt really confident about it. And I got waitlisted again and I was, I was equally crushed. And so I was all ready to sign the paperwork to go. I had a, a backup plan with, uh, Kansas state university, uh, Frank trace, who's the uh, director of bands there. He was, at Syracuse my freshman year. So I had a a relationship with him and he invited me to, you know, come out there and, and, and I would have, you know, done kind of the same thing as my undergrad. I would have had, um, you know, full ride scholarship plus a a teaching fellowship to do that, to go there. I probably would have made money when I was at Kansas state, but something in me told me that wasn't the right place for me. I needed to be somewhere where I would be surrounded by, opportunities to get to the next level and as great an institution as Kansas State is they just don't have the Boston Symphony across the street from the school you know that that's just what it is and so thankfully at the 11th hour I got the note that I was accepted to New England and and I went there and I and I did you know they don't they pay players with scholarship money but composers they tend to not (laughs) offer as generous a scholarship um, opportunity so but it was worth it to me. You know, my dad's an accountant. He's not a musician. And he kind of spelled it out, you know, what student loans would look like and et cetera. And I said, you know what, it's, it's still worth doing. And I said, I'll, you know, I'm going to get the skills there that I need to really be a viable professional getting out of this. Um, and it ended up being the case. And, and, I, and I just love being in Boston. It was just such a fertile environment for music. And like I mentioned, the, the symphony was across the street. And 
so much so that, you know, as a graduate student, you'll know this, Tom, you have a lot of flexibility in your schedule, right? You take a few classes, maybe some lessons with your primary teacher, but there's a lot of time in there, you know, to really dedicate to your craft and develop innerwards. And there's also some time there to get some, you know, odd jobs to help pay for the whole affair. And so instead of getting a random job at a, you know, a bookstore or, or a, a coffee shop, I ended up getting a bartending job at the Boston Symphony. So I got to go see and hear that great orchestra, you know, four or five nights a week, plus all the the outside arts um, organizations that would perform there. And and it was the best choice because I was in that in that world. And as a work study, I got a uh, position with the audio department at the conservatory. So I got to hear all those, you know, be involved in recording all the great things. And I'm going to date myself, make cassette copies <laughs> of the recordings um, for everyone to enjoy <laughs> at their leisure. But this but is the, and it was just, it was being, that. Right. I, as I remember the story going from here was something along the lines of you knew someone that went back to the symphony and you were like, Hey, I have a piece. Uh, I'm a composer. And he actually mm -hmm. went to someone and said, Hey, you know, there's, this is the bartender or whatever. The bartender is a composer yeah. and uh, they needed a fanfare for something. I, I go on with that. Cause I think that is an amazing story. Well, it was interesting because as you know, this business and most businesses are all about relationships and, and people, it's a people business, right? And so one of the girls that was in the marching band with me at Syracuse um, was from Boston and her dad had a company and they wanted to uh, kind of give a gift to the city of Boston on the, uh, the 100th anniversary of the Boston Marathon. And so they commissioned me to write a fanfare and he kind of talked to me about it and Initially, I, I wrote it for brass and lar large brass ensemble or, you know, symphony brass ensemble, 12 players. And I got, I mean, all the guys at the conservatory, I mean, all the guys I got to play on this thing, um, the company paid, you know, for the recording and the players and everything. But, you know, like, I think 10 out of the 12 players are in major U.S. orchestras now, like one have one auditions. I mean, it's, it's crazy, like the second trumpet player, Chris Still, out here in L.A. with the L.A. Philharmonic, he was playing on it. And uh, Jim Nova, a good friend of mine, is, um, you know, playing principal in, in uh, Pittsburgh Symphony. I mean, they're all killer, killer players. So I have this amazing recording um, of the piece. And, and that's what I showed my boss at the bartenders, who sounded a lot like Cliff Claiborne from, from Cheers. He goes, hey, Sean, I hear you had a uh, little piece there that you want to, you know, why don't you give me a cassette tape of that? I'll just see what I could do. So he, he, uh, he gave it to Dennis Elves, who's the artistic um, uh, director of the Boston Pops Orchestra. And so that's how that happened. I, I, you know, I gave this cassette to, you know, the head of bartenders, John McMinn was his name, and uh, didn't think much of it, just thought he wanted to hear, you know, some of my work. And because he had, you know, he knew what I did and what I was at the conservatory for. And uh, not really knowing that he would give it up the food chain, so to say, and I remember dropping it off very clearly on a Monday in, I think it was in March. And later that afternoon, I went back to my dorm and I had an answering machine back then because we, none of us had, yep. this is 90, 1995. So none of us really had any cell phones or 96. And, and uh, it was a message from, from Dennis from the Boston Pops and said, Hey, I heard your piece really like it. Does it, 
you know, and so I, he goes, give me a call back. So, you know, I'm fumbling, you know, like Chevy Chase with the quarters and the, you know, the vibrating bed and vacation, you know, I'm fumbling with the quarters to put, to find, to call him back. And, and, uh, yeah. So he asked me if it existed for full orchestra and I said, well, it will. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I took the next two weeks with my, uh, teacher, wonderful teacher, Alan Fletcher at the conservatory who now runs the Aspen music festival. Um, and he helped me kind of really dive into what, you know, professional orchestration looks like. I mean, you can orchestrate, but you know, when it's being played by the Boston pops, it's gotta be right. And it's gotta be good. So he helped me with that. And, and then uh, about a month after that, they programmed it on a, a concert at symphony hall in Boston with Boston pops. And they gave me the night off. They let me just come <laughs> and be in the audience. I didn't have to work that night, but, uh, Keith Lockhart conducted it and, uh, he had just, uh, got that job, the Boston pops, and um, he was very gracious. He he called me out after the piece, and and uh, you know he says we got a little story with this one because you know it's one of our bartenders who's um, you know a accomplished composer, and and that was written by him. And so it was just a one of those moments where I knew I could do this for a living and make it as a writer. Um, and not that my my parents needed convincing because they they saw what I was doing, but for them to be there to witness this on that biggest stage and know that, you know, their, their son can write music that a major symphony can play. Um, that gave me the impetus to move out here to LA to really pursue uh, music and writing as a yeah, career. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. So, so after that happened, you, you graduate from NEC? Uh, well, no, I had, I had an extra year. Well, that was my, after my first year. So I had one more year of grad school, got my master's and then, um, during my second year of spring break, I took a trip out to California and I had set up um, through a couple of mutual friends, some meetings with people. Um, uh, Dennis at the Boston Pops set, set me up with the folks at the Hollywood Bowl uh, Orchestra. So I met with them and which they're also part of the LA Philharmonic. The two of them are, are the same entity. And um, it was, uh, again, it was you know, taking a bartender job to make money ended up being something that really opened up doors for me in ways that I could never have imagined. Um, and so that gave me, you know, after that, you know, kind of spring break trip, um, I, I knew this is, I, I, you know, landed in LA and I just loved it from the very first time I, I got off the, you know, got off the plane and then, you know, packed up my 86 Honda Accord <laughs> at the end of the summer in 95 or 97, I should say, and, and drove out here and, and I've been here, uh, pretty much ever since. So, oh, wow. So, um, so the Hollywood bowl. So did you start writing for the Hollywood bowl? Like right when you got up? No, that's oh, not okay. quite how the, I was going to say that. I was going to say that seemed, it, I was like, wow, that would have been quick. Okay. That happened eventually, but, um, it took a, a few yeah. years to kind of establish myself, but, um, so one of the other folks that I was introduced to um, through my Boston Symphony ties was uh, a wonderful company called Joanne Kane Music Service. And what they do is they're a music preparation house. So they work with composers for film, TV, and other live projects, um, some Broadway stuff too. And, and what they do is they'll take the, you know, the composer's scores for film or the orchestrator's scores and then create all the individual instrument parts for recording sessions. And, you know, when you think about a two hour movie, 
there's probably about an hour and a half worth of music or an hour and 15 minutes that, you know, an average band piece that, you know, we play with our students is three minutes <laughs> and, you know, that's two pages of parts, right? Two pages for each part. So imagine an hour and 15 minutes, um, of doing that. And, uh, that's just a lot of music to prep and, and composers and orchestrators just simply don't have time when they're, you know, writing for film and TV projects. So they engage with, uh, with companies like, like Joe and Kane to, um, to make that happen. And so, you know, their top client is John Williams and Alan Silvestri, Randy Newman, J uh, James Newton Howard. So, you know, all the, you know, top film composers at the time were using them. And so I kind of came in, took, uh, I guess it was an interview. The, the, the freelance LA scene is, is a bit, uh, you, you never know when you're hired. Well, you do know when you're hired, but you never know when you're fired. They just don't call you. Yeah. Uh, so no, nobody really tells you. So, I, I mean, the best way to know that you're doing it right is when they keep calling you back um, to come. And so thankfully that happened to me. But I remember going in there for the first time and they were working on a that Matthew Broderick picture, the Godzilla one from like the, I think it was 1998. It was a terrible movie. But it, the composer on that, Nicholas Dodd, um, no, no, Nicholas Dodd was the orchestrator and his handwriting was atrocious <laughs> and it was all handwritten back then. This yeah. is before like finale Sibelius kind of took hold, uh, which now, you know, mostly everything is, is in notation software. You, you very rarely see a handwritten score, but all that to say is their team of about 25 people were buried on this. And so. They said, hey, we have the Simpsons episode because they did all the Simpsons uh, shows. Uh, composer Alf Clausen did all those really, you know, awesome little bits. And they said, we have the Simpsons show. Can you proofread these parts because the session's tonight? And I was and I didn't even know what I was doing. So, I, yeah, sure, I could do that. So you look at the score and then look at the part that the cop music copy has created to make sure everything, you know, is is in line. And and so that session went off without a hitch after I proofread it and then they, they kept asking me back. <laughs> so, so I went there and then a kid that I met, um, in Boston who was going to Berkeley at the time, he was working at the Sony, uh, studio music library. And so they were doing the same thing, but for a lot of the Sony pictures and, and, and the like. So there was a time where I was kind of waiting by the phone each night to see which studio would call me, whether it be Joanne's office or, or Sony. And, so I got to work on some uh, some pretty pretty fun movies, and I did that for about eleven years. Um, worked in that industry, and probably worked on over I think four hundred films or four hundred and fifty films. Um, which, and and to be honest, Tom, it was like an extension of my education because you know looking at a John Williams score, and you know even if you're just copying out a flute part, you know you're looking up and down the score vertically as much as you are. Um, on your own individual part to make sure things line up because typically, you know, parts will be doubled here and there and you want to make sure that the melody is, is right. The notes are right with the melody. And I remember one project I was working on, it was for John Williams, but it was his cello concerto that he had written for uh, Yo-Yo Ma, you know, just, you know, some light reading and uh, <laughs> I mean, a very involved piece. And, I remember looking at the cello part. Now it's original music, right? So there's not really a reference. You can't go back to a lead sheet or a piano vocal to see what the real notes are. And there was something about it that just didn't, 
it didn't look right to me. And, and John Williams never makes mistakes. I mean, he's so diligent and so, uh, amazingly in tune with his craft but you know he is human too there's little anomalies that sneak in every once in a while and and there was like one note that i thought should be a natural and he had marked it flat and it just it didn't seem quite right and and i just flagged it and i went to the guy at the uh, the head of the office i said you know very you know shakingly <laughs> shaking my hands i think this is i think this should be a flat and he goes he goes no worry i'll ask john when i see him you know later today and and God bless it, Tom, I was right. John said, yeah, that should have been a flat. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm really, you know, that, but that lesson taught me about attention to detail. And if my name is on a piece of music, I want that, I want it to be right. And I want it to be right the first time, not the seventh time. <laughs> I want it right the first time. So I've really taken that to heart um, in any piece I write, whether I'm writing for you know, a, a major professional orchestra, or I'm, you know, writing for XYZ middle school band, you know, I, I approach it the same way, because music's music, and it needs to be right, and it needs to be worth people's time playing it and preparing it, because I know, you know, uh, band directors out there and music teachers, you know, they're spending weeks and sometimes months on these pieces of music. So you want to make a piece of music and create a piece of music that's worth that. You know, and that's worth that time. Now, in the professional world, we may get one rehearsal, <laughs> and then we're off and running. You know, that's kind of kind of where it goes. But yeah, all the more um, reason why it needs needs and, to be detailed. You know what I mean? Like, I I it's exactly. I, mean, I have lots of pieces where I'll, and it's to the points where, and especially if I do them even five years later, I'll have like in the score, like, oop, there's a misprint on this part. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but if you're only get, I mean, that's, but that's a reality yeah. too. I mean, you know. It's just human. It's the human element of it. But I, I wanted to back up really quick and mention that, you know, even though I ended up adding some music composition um, classes to myself um, in my skill development and my education, I still go back to it. And I tell everyone this. I am so happy that I had a music ed degree because it really allowed me to a peel the onion back of what it's like to teach these pieces and teach, you know, those different instruments, but also, you know, as you know, you have to take, you know, methods classes on all these instruments. You have to play them. You have to learn how to play them. So I could play most of the instruments except for the oboe. That one got me. That one, I <laughs> couldn't put two notes in a row, but, but like, I love the bassoon. I took clarinet lessons, trombone lessons, and I was a trumpet player. Um, that was my main instrument. And so, but learning how to play all, you know, in string methods class, I raised my hand to volunteer to play the viola because it has its own clef. And I wanted to learn how to, you know, read alto clef. And so I always think, you know, if it's a weakness, make it a strength, you know, so identify whatever your weaknesses are and then dive in and make it a strength. And so, you know, as I'm fortunate enough to write a lot of orchestral um, arrangements and, and original works these days, you know, moving between treble, bass, and alto clef is really not an issue. It's, you know, it's like a, its own language, of course, but um, but sometimes people are intimidated by alto clef, mm -hmm. and, you know, you just look at it and be like, and, you know, when you're in a rehearsal, and I'm, you know, I'm fortunate to be a conductor now with a couple of orchestras, you know, you have to be able to look at a score in rehearsal and identify what what's happening and answer any questions that the players may have. And, and inevitably there's always note questions and, you know, you can't sit there and be like, okay, face, every good boy does yeah. fine. You know, you can't do, you have to be able to just look and make it happen. Yeah. So, 
Um, so I really credit my music ed classes and my method classes for making me a better composer. Um, I don't think I would have got that same education had I just solely, you know, been a, a music composition major from, from day one in college. So, And it does seem, um, it also seems like, at least from what I can glean from you on Facebook, it seems like you're doing a lot more conducting now. So that, I mean... I have been, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you're busy with the baton. So that's incredible. Like the... Um, I mean, I don't think you conducted, well, I don't know if you conducted this, but the big thing that just happened for you lately was you you reorchestrated or you made an orchestration of the musical Rent. Um, explain a little bit about yeah. what that was. It seemed like that was a really <laughs> oh, cool. Oh boy, Tom. <laughs> yeah, so this one agency, uh, AMP uh, Worldwide, it's a, you know, artist management and, you know, kind of producer, presenter um, group. It's it's a bunch of former um there are a couple of former Columbia artist management or Cami agents that kind of broke off when Cami, um, you know, kind of went away and they created this thing. So they represented a couple of the artists that I had worked with in the past. So the Indigo girls, I created a bunch of, um, uh, orchestral arrangements for their music. And then also Natalie Merchant, wonderful singer from, um, 10,000 maniacs and has a, you know, wonderful solo career. So they had seen some of my work in the past and and they had uh this amp management had gotten the rights to rent and now rent is um the original score is just for rock band so it's piano bass drums uh electric you know guitar i think there's two guitar parts and the second guitar part kind of doubles on keyboard a little bit but really just five musicians for that whole score and so many great songs right and it's it's it means a lot to a lot of people and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people because um, the subject matter is, you know, it's it's pretty heavy dealing with AIDS and, you know, you know, the bohemian life in New York City. And it's it's loosely based on La Boheme, uh, the Puccini opera, but um, but just kind of updated to, you know, the, the streets in New York and and all the different things and the friends and, you know, but at the end of the day, it's about love it's a story of love and all the different ways. And it's not a traditional story about love, but it is. And so they had gotten the rights to uh, be able to or you know, present it as an orchestra or a symphony show, but it was not staged. It was literally, they would have, I think there, there ended up being like 10 or 12 actors slash singers on stage. And so it was just a concert presentation of the whole thing, but they needed it orchestrated. And so I remember getting this email and it was very cryptic. It was like, um, hey, Tim Fox here. And, you know, da, da, da. Uh, I got this project, but I can't tell you about it. Are you available? I'm like, well, wait, what? <laughs> you got to tell me at some point. So what he didn't want to do is write it in an email. He didn't want a paper trail. So we talked about it on the phone and he, you know, d divulged what it was and all that. And so this is like early April of this past year or of this, of this current year. And, and I thought, Oh yeah, would love to do that. I mean, I love orchestrating and taking, you know, he goes, you have a real uh, a history with rock bands and creating orchestra charts to go with rock bands. And we love what you do with it. So we'd love you to do this to this project. So I thought, okay, we, you know, when, when's the concert next year sometime? And he goes, Oh no, it's in July. Um, in the, with the national symphony at the Kennedy center and they want the music by, you know, the first week of July so that they can hand it out to the players and everyone be, but the performances were at the end of July. So, so I took a meeting 
with them in New York City uh, the end of April, and I started working on it in on April 28th, and so that gave me the month of May and June, essentially two months to orchestrate over two hours worth of music, which was a lot of 5 a.m.s, Tom, <laughs> my wife can attest, um, and, you know, because the kids are still in school, and I still had some conducting gigs myself that I was, you know, traveling to, so I was juggling quite a bit, but yeah, it it and in true rent form, it took me eighty six thousand four hundred minutes to uh, to orchestrate the whole score <laughs> instead of the five hundred twenty five thousand you know six hundred that come. Yeah, well, that's that's great. Uh, I was really song, happy but... to see that, and I uh, I I went to see it uh, somewhat recently, actually a year and a half ago. I went to see the the show. It was a traveling uh version of it but yes. it was, it was a, obviously a great show and i had heard the music before and it's it's wonderful i like to see new things done um this is uh something i i was talking to a, a, a friend of mine that works at berkeley school of music and he he composes like show music for like american pickers for example is one of his shows and he does the music for that and oh, and cool. i was um i was wondering if, if you were to create, you know, as part of the national frameworks, composing is part of it, right? And so if you were to think about, like, if you're just going to, like, go way outside the box and be like, you know, to really better serve our students and offer and, you know, give them a better sense of what it's like to be a composer or to experiment with composing, you know, what what would you – is there something different than we should do? I don't know if you remember you came into – when you were in Falmouth, you know, we have like a music tech lab with like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. and they were doing a really pretty cool project with Steve at that, at that time. Um, but, uh, if, if you were going to create one, what would it look like? I, I think, you know, ultimately the, the kids have to hear their work and hearing their work with some of their, um, fellow students is, is good, but, but also doesn't have to be limited to that. So, so I'm, I'm trying to understand the question too, yeah, Tom. Sure. It's like trying to think of a, a, a different way to teach yeah, either like if, or expose the students to composition. Like if I, you know, if you think back to your schooling or what you know to typical schooling music education to be, is there a better way if you like, man, especially you being a composer, man, I, if, if they only did this or one little tweak or you know what, blow it all up and you really should do this. And I think kids would learn more, learn better, learn more, or be more prepared to be a composer uh, if they did this. Um, well, first of all, just knowing the the tech software side of things for sure. Um, but then also one of the, one of the coolest things that I did in, I think it was in a form class in college and undergrad was we took the Bach, uh, uh, well-tempered clavier uh, book and one of our assignments was like to pick one of them and just copy it out by hand not with a computer copy it out by hand and you got to really kind of touch and feel the counterpoint the melody the harmony um, I don't think that happens enough at this we sometimes we get too enamored with the technology side of things but going back to actually writing it with pencil and paper and knowing that discipline, I think, is such a powerful tool. And it's not, it's a, a more freeing way to do it, right? You're not worried about, oh, com command control C to get this or, you know, F1 to do that. You're, you're like, okay, what's the real musical part of it? Um, 
and also transcribing things, listening is such a huge part of it. Um, my ears are really my lifeline um, in this process. And I think developing younger students' ears and having them write out a melody without using a keyboard or any instrument as a point of reference. Maybe give them one note and then start to build, you know, listen to a song or listen to a melody. It could be a single line. It could be, a you know, an orchestral piece, whatever it may be. But write it out, you know, just by listening to it. There were guys in that, um, at Joanne Kane's office that we, I was working with, when they were transcribing, they were just doing it with earphones and, and writing into uh, the notation right away. They were not, they didn't have a keyboard, they didn't have a piano or anything like that as a point of reference to play it out. They had to use their ears to build those um, relationships of sound in their head. So it was tying in the process of hearing to what it looks like and what it looks like to what it sounds like. And the quicker that you can do that. So, I mean, that would be a great exercise to do for a young composition student is give them like a single line solo melody and just have them write it out without using a keyboard. And the benefits of that um, are huge because now you start to internalize. So like when I hear, so here's case in, case in point, and I'm not trying to name drop. I'm just trying to give you what the situation was. Um, I was working, um, I was doing a concert last year with the San Diego Symphony. It was a big cancer benefit concert. And Alicia Keys was the, the guest artist. So, um, so we went and we're going through the rehearsal and I'm conducting that performance. And I had done a little bit of writing. Um, there was a need for that. So I had done a little bit of writing for it um, while we're in rehearsal. And, and Alicia was amazing, just a beautiful person, beautiful human being. And we get done playing this one song and I'm going, getting ready to go into the next thing. She goes, where's, where's the strings? I was like, what do you mean? Where's the string? She goes, there's this whole little string, you know, postlude that is with the song. Do you have that? And I was like, no, it wasn't given to us. We don't have it. Um, and then she's like, well, this is, it was one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show and et cetera, et cetera, all that. And she's like, I loved hearing the strings on this. And I was like, all right, look, I was like, send me the MP3 and I'll sort it out. So during our, our rehearsal break of 20 minutes, I'm in my dressing room with my computer and on the MP3. And all I had was my, you know, my laptop. I didn't have a MIDI setup. I didn't have all this. And so I had to listen to this MP3 and write out. It was 30 seconds. It ended up being about 12 bars or whatever. But I called it arranging real time. Mm -hmm. And I put this thing together because Alicia, you know, she's the guest artist and, you know, want to keep keep the queen happy um and and we came back out it took me 25 minutes but um <laughs> so the orchestra got an extra five minute break but i you know emailed the librarian who was on site and so she printed out the the parts and the score and then we dropped it on the stage and on the stands and we played it in the second half for her and she was like oh exactly what i wanted and i was like that's what it was. But if I didn't have, you know, the point being, if I didn't have that skill of just simply listening and then kind of visualize what you hear and then write that down, that skill is so important. Um, and obviously it came in handy with a high pressure. I don't even want to know what my heart rate was during that <laughs> whole experience, but, um, but I had the skills to do it. Tom. Yeah. That oh, was yeah. the point. And, and by, by having that make, makes me, not just a better composer, but a better musician, you know, cause you're able to hear things and, and really relate to what they look like versus what they sound like. And, you know, so exercises like that, I think would be 
very helpful to a developing composer. Thank you. Uh, I, I saw recently, um, you know, I've been getting your music for years from Carl Fisher, but I, I've noticed recently Correct. now you're uh, with Excelsior Publishing. And, and I guess for my own lack of knowledge on it, like how, how does that work? Do you, are you like sort of like, are you signed on to a, to a publishing company and you're like, Oh, uh, I'm writing band and orchestra music for, you know, Excelsior now, or I, now I was writing it for Carl Fisher, or do you write the piece and be like, you know, I'm going to publish this with this publisher, or I'd like to, I'm going to submit it to them. Uh, I think uh, some right. people would like to hear how that works. Yeah. So, so backing up to um, Syracuse university, the uh, band director or director of bands at the time was Larry Clark, which is probably a name oh, yeah. you guys know. Um, in the band world and string world. And so Larry was a mentor and teacher to me back in my undergrad. He actually gave me my first version of Finale 3.1, I think it was, <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> um, and we worked on a 75 me you know, megabyte or gigahertz machine or megahertz machine. I think it was 75 megahertz. And, of course, now the you know the machines are so, so fast. But you know, we literally had to wait for the – you know, the screen to refresh after every note we inputted. It was crazy. But um, no, so I've been kind of following. I mean, he was the one that first got me published with uh, Warner Brothers because he left Syracuse and went to Warner Brothers Publishing. And so I have a couple things published with them. And then he got the job of vice president at Carl Fisher. And so he invited me to, to start writing with Carl Fisher. So that's where that connection came through. Um, and then Larry um, started Excelsior music about five years ago and my relationship was always with Larry and not, I mean, Carl Fisher was very good to me and, you know, was able to, you know, I, it was a, a publishing lifeline to me to, uh, you know, be able to distribute my music, et cetera. But, um, but again, my, my, my relationship was with Larry. So when he left and he, and he was very, you know, kind to me and said, Hey, would, you know, I understand you got, you know, things with Carl Fisher, if you want to, you know, keep writing for them or, or if you want to come write for me, you know, we have a slot for you and everything. So, um, Larry just knows how to, um, present music, market music. And, and he's a great editor. He's, you know, he's been kind of my de facto composition teacher all these years. You know, we always joke about the red pen comes out and, <laughs> you know, there's a little less red pen as I get older, but, um, I just turned 50 this year, Tom. So it's, Everything feels a little bit more perspective. I'm not but, too far um, behind you. Yeah, so that's is, yeah, so that's where that relationship comes. And again, getting back to what I said earlier about music being, you know, a people business. And um, he's he's been a trusted um, friend and mentor and a place for me. And so that's why you know my all my original works go with him. Um, the uh, and I've also. Um, had a chance to work with Mike Sweeney and Paul Lavender at Hal Leonard. So I've done some writing for them and, and Larry was really, you know, kind, even though I had a, you know, a contract with Carl Fisher um, and I, I have a contract now with, with um, Excelsia. He, he still says, Hey, you know, if you want to go write some things for Hal Leonard, when they come up, he goes, that, that's not going to really conflict with what we're doing. And in fact, it'll only, you know, heighten your profile in the industry when you're, you know, working with those kind of things. But the one thing I didn't want to do is just have all of my original works like spread over 75 publishers. It, it It's hard to kind of get a singular voice, at least for me, 
Um, and I know there's some, some folks out there that do that and that's, um, more than fine, but, um, it's just not the path that, that I wanted to take. And, and, you know, to be honest, Tom, I mean, I'm, you know, with my conducting positions, I'm pops conductor with the Victoria symphony up in British Columbia, and then also symphoria, which is the, the orchestra in Syracuse, New York. So, you know, I'm guest conducting on top of that. Um, actually just got back from San Diego, had, uh, two concerts this past weekend, conducted one with, uh, the legendary Judy Collins of all people. She's still going at 84, just a force of nature. It was awesome to work with her. And, and then on Saturday night, there was a private event um, with the San Diego Symphony that I conducted with Jennifer Hudson. Um, oh, wow. So that was those things present, um, you know, when you get a rock band going, it presents a whole new set of challenges, yeah. um, which uh, which we <laughs> we had some good challenges with that one. But everyone, you know, came off great. and Everyone was smiling. And so we, we fooled them again, like they say. Yeah. Well, um I do remember too. There was one other thing um, when you came to visit. You had given a um, a really interesting um, a presentation, and during that presentation, you showed us. I want to say it was the music from Pan, uh, Pan. and um, yeah, and I the thing I remember most about it was you showed us this and you, you played some music. And then you said, <laughs> now I'm going to play it again with the actual, once it's been, uh, once we orchestrated it and put it actual with the real instruments. And I right. was not the only one who turned to the person beside me and go, that wasn't real instruments. And and so like I, I was I was thinking about this yesterday. I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about like the writers' strike, you know, and how like and and you know they're thinking about you know now it's like AI and Chat GPT is going to be writing all the scripts, you oh, know. Yeah. So, so now I'm like, oh my gosh, are musicians ever going to get replaced? And I guess my question is, are musicians ever going to get replaced? <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly hope not. I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that AI can do. And the one thing that AI never will have is, uh, is a soul, you know, yes. and, you know, the emotion that comes with it. And um, yes, the, the synthesized sounds are really incredible. And, and, and Tom, that presentation was from, right. you know, that was a while ago, got, you know, 20, 20 years ago, maybe, you know, something like that. So you can only imagine what the sounds are like now compared to, you know, back then. Um, and I have a colleague and a good friend of mine who orchestrates quite a bit for Hans Zimmer. And, you know, they use a lot of that um, technology side of things to, you know, create these um, these mock-ups for directors and producer types who aren't musicians who, you know, need to hear it. They can't quite see the score and say, oh, that sounds good. Um, I, you know, I don't think so. I think there's, there's such a human element to music performance and um it may creep into more TV, I think, just because of the time frame in the, or film. Um, I mean, I hope it doesn't because, you know, th there's still phrases that need to be made. And there's still, you know, I actually saw, you know, speaking of the AI thing, I, I saw a thing, I think it was in Korea or something, where they had a robot conduct an orchestra. I don't know if you saw no. that, that little news bit. That was crazy. It looked like the, you know, the... Um, the robot dog, yeah, you know, like so that one like that throws arms and legs, basket, but no head. The one that yeah. can uh, shoot yeah. baskets. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. So this one was shooting a phrase out there with the orchestra, but um, oh my gosh, uh, I pray that doesn't I happen. Know. I mean, I you know we'd all be out of a job. Right. right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, right. Exactly. Uh, so then, with the last couple questions, I usually ask all, all the guests. Uh, one would be, and this I feel like is going to be really tough for you. You've already given us a, a few examples, but what are your top top couple musical memories? Could be as a performer, a composer, a conductor, anything. You know, there's there's been a, I've been fortunate to have um, a few of those that are really hard to um, <laughs> pin down, um, but but maybe you know a couple examples. You know, not necessarily best or in order, but just you know some examples of some top musical things um, that would be in place. But um, you know, being on being on a couple of TV projects with um, Josh Groban and Pentatonix was really cool. Got to be on NBC. Um, the tree lighting we did with Josh Groban was really cool, and um, I did a whole PBS special with Josh on his Stages album. Um, you know, being in that kind of spotlight and being on Good Morning America, you know, national TV, and just thinking, you know, I'm a little kid from Syracuse, New York, you know, and now all of a sudden I'm doing these kind of things um, was really cool. This this Alicia Keys event last year was, you know, front and center, you know, 5,000 people doing, you know, performing like that was was really great. And being able to, you know, manage, because it's a time management thing when you're conducting those those types of gigs. Um, you know, just hugely satisfying. Um, but then, then there's some moments where it doesn't have to be on that big of a stage to still be impactful. Um, I did a, a project with, um, Mona Shores middle school and high school, which is in the West coast of, or the West side of, um, the state of Michigan. And they brought me out there and kind of what I did with Falmouth where, you know, I had like a little mini residency. So I got to work with um, uh, both the middle school and the high school orchestra program. And and for me, being known more as a, a band composer in the publishing world, it was really fun for me to do a, a strictly orchestral um, residency. And so really getting to talk with them and, you know, just seeing how the town kind of you know, rolled out the red carpet for me. I mean, it's just pretty cool to think, you know, where you come from and then where you've been. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, whether I'm writing for, you know, the LA Philharmonic or I'm writing for, um, you know, Mona Shores Middle School, it, it, to me, it's still really great music and you want to, you know, treat those experiences equally as such. Um, and I never really prioritize so much, um, if it's a great opportunity and a great musical opportunity, I'm, you know, to me seeing the looks on the kids' faces is, is, you know, makes it all magical. <laughs> so you, you know, if you're, uh, if you're in the car, you're driving someplace, what are you listening to? Uh, it, <laughs> when I first moved to LA in the car, I remember coming down the 10 freeway and I could see the, um, I could see the skyline of, of downtown LA in the distance. And, and my go-to was, uh, symphony number five, the finale. I mean, it was, it was, 
<laughs> it was like a victory lap, you know, even though I didn't hadn't done anything yet, I just moved it in there. But, um, but that's one of those pieces that always gets me Chike five. Um, but I think if I had Chike five or Mahler six has always been one that's stuck to my ears pretty good. Um, and, and kind of a left field one is Leonard Bernstein's second symphony, the age of anxiety. I got really close with that piece when I was in, in Boston. And uh, so much so I wrote a, a, a paper on it, you know, kind of diving into what it meant and, and all the different things. So if you haven't checked out Bernstein's second symphony, it's for piano and orchestra based on the WH Auden poem of the same name, age of anxiety. It's, it's a, a magical piece of music. I mean, it's not the best thing ever written, but it's, for me, it was very personal. And, and in my mind, it, it really portrayed Bernstein because he was a conductor, a composer, and a pianist. And all those three elements are in that piece. So um, giving away what I wrote about on my paper. But, <laughs> um, but, but that's you know music that continues to inspire me. If, if I get stuck when I'm not in the car, when I get stuck writing... Um, and just need some fresh ideas. I know this sounds odd, but I pull out the score to write a spring, Stravinsky, and look at all the great orchestration ideas that he did, or the Firebird Suite, and all the kind of kind of re-energizes me of like, oh, I can think of this a different way, or I can, you know, not stealing. It's imitation is the you know highest form of flattery, sure. and that certainly happens with with composers all the time. Um, the Lost Tomb. I, I want to say it's when you when you were visiting Falmouth, you said you yeah, were like, hey, you should check out like. the Lost Tomb, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, and I was like, this my stu- I do that like every few years. My students love it. I they love it. it it's Car- Carmina Burana for exactly. Grade one. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, that you know, it's great. It's great. And, you know, and, and that's the thing. I well, but, but to your to to your point though, Tom, you're like anyone can write a grade four, but can you write a grade one piece? that is impactful and doesn't use eighth notes because <laughs> the kids don't know eighth notes yet. Right. right. I mean, yeah. I mean, that was, that I think was like a grade one piece. So there actually are eighth notes in it, but it's, oh, yeah, there's, there's some eighth notes in there, there but it's not in, like, yeah. you know, they're all their neighbor, neighbor notes. They're it's very, very simple yep. for those kids. It's, but it's great. And, and they love it. It's like, they wouldn't know Carmina Burana if it fell on their head, but it, they know it sounds cool and there's something forceful mm-hmm. in this and there's something impactful about it. And it's, wow, this is this, it hits them. They love it. Every time I do it, they love the piece. Oh, it's great. And that's, to hear. listen, and that's you, like you said, it's very hard and I am very specific. I'm very picky about the music I pick. You know, I'm not, I love pop music like the next guy. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do pop tunes just to do pop tunes because the kids want to do pop tunes because it doesn't always relate to their instruments, you know. But if I find a great right. sounding piece, you know, and sometimes I'll be listening. I'll have YouTube on. Man, I love YouTube, and um, you know, I'll listen to a piece on YouTube. I mean, this happened to me the other day, and I was actually getting pieces for like one of the adult groups that I compose and that I conduct. Excuse me, and. uh and I had YouTube going on in the background. And I was doing something else, and I'm listening to this piece, and I was like, "This sounds. Be- this is a sounds great." And I and I go to it, and it's Brian Baumages, grade one and a half. And I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" Like I'm literally thinking <laughs> yeah. I could probably do this with my adult group. It sounded so good and so pro and so amazing, but it was a great. It was one point five, one and a half, 
yeah. know, and I just feel like there are certain composers you concluded for for young band and orchestra that just have a way of making pieces sometimes with five or six pitches <laughs> sound yeah. incredibly pro and amazing and i it and I think that's so good for our students uh I think they feel great when they do that so and it's and it's also important that they um, are playing good music right from the start, um, not just music that is technically attainable, but music that is teaching them music as well. You know, I think that's really important. So when I'm going through constructing, you know, each year I'm, I'm tasked at writing a piece for each one piece for each grade level. So grade half, which is even more challenging, grade one, one and a half, two, grade three. Um, occasionally I'll do a grade four, but those take a lot longer, mm -hmm. Tom. Yeah. <laughs> There's more notes yeah. in those things. And, and, you know, the higher up on the grade level spectrum you go, um, the less, you know, students and the less bands can play them. And so, you know, I tend to kind of stay grade three and below for most of the works I do, but, you know, occasionally it's good to stretch your, stretch your legs a little bit. And, and especially it, it helps if it's a commissioned work. So, um, you know, your, your time is compensated for actually writing it and you're not waiting, you know, for the royalties mm -hmm. to kick in to, uh, to do that. You know, I mean, the, the nature of it, Tom, yes, it's educational music, but you know, we're still making a living writing and doing these things. So there's that element to it. You know, the, the publishers are not nonprofit, they are for profit right. entities. Um, but that allows them to keep, you know, making this great material available, uh, to you, your programs and, and all the programs around. So, I mean, and don't think they're making a huge amount of money. Oh, they there's are, no way. I, they're making, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I can't imagine. Yeah, I mean, I get three, four dollars a copy, so that that's not exactly you know retire right now. So I have to do other things, which is you know where some of the conducting comes in and, and et cetera. So it, you know you you piece it all together at the end of the year. Um, it's not a traditional um, work uh, model. Um, and so you have to have some tough skin to do that, but, um, but ultimately I enjoy the flexibility and, and the variety of projects that I'm able to work on. I've and, talked um, to a couple other composers. But, are you, and, and actually a few of them are very specific. Like, you know what? I'm a composer. That's my job. So after my kids go to school, even if I don't have a deadline or a project or whatever, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to compose or at least get the juices flowing are, are you that type of person uh yes and no um I, i'm more uh, deadline driven and project driven um occasionally i get to write a piece that i want to write solely for myself and not necessarily attached to a project or a publishing assignment um, i did write a piano trio last year um, and it was for three colleagues of mine with the orchestra in Syracuse. And uh, so it's piano, violin, and cello, which is a typical, you know, piano tree. I know it, it's odd to the sure. passive listener of like, why isn't it three pianos? You know, why is it a piano trio if there's violins and viola and cello involved? But um, so that project was really cool. It was a 15 minute work, three movements. Um, and one of the, uh, the pianist was also a professor at Oswego University just north of Syracuse. And so he set up a little residency for us to premiere the piece. And um, we got it programmed on a new music group concert in Syracuse as well. So, but that was a piece I wrote without anyone, you know, no editor, no publisher, no anything. It was just me writing a piece of music for what I wanted to write it. And 
the piece is called pointillism and I kind of used all of the painting techniques that are in pointillism but translated it to music and it was just a really good brain exercise for me um, and like I said writing a piece of serious music at the highest level of um, of skill you know these players were all you know you know world-class performers in their own right um, and it, and it was fun to kind of stretch my legs like that but but for the most part you know 99% of the writing I do is I'm either hired to do it or it's a publishing assignment um, something along those lines so or it's you know some side fun projects for friends of mine and you know, little arrangements here and there. I'm actually in, uh, next month going up to Portland, Oregon. I have some good friends in the Oregon Symphony up there and the brass quintet. We're going to record uh, 14 of my Christmas uh, brass quintet arrangements for a, for an album that we'll release later this year. So Great. stuff like that's super fun, you know. Is there anything else in the in the work? You got some, anything in the works that we need to keep our eyes out for you? Um. You know, I try to post some things on social media when they come up. I'm not, I'm probably not the best person to follow. I'm not <laughs> the most interesting, but, but occasionally I have some fun things that, that come around, but, um, a, a couple things in the works, I'm developing a, a couple, uh, symphony pop shows behind the scenes that, um, we'll see how that all, all plays out, um, coming down the road. But, um, I have a pretty busy conducting, uh, slate this coming season, um, in addition to my normal um, bits with Victoria and Syracuse, I'm also up in Vancouver this year. I'm going to um, for three shows, I think, and with the Vancouver Symphony, which is great. And then um, have one down in Florida with the Punta Gorda Symphony. Um, and I'm excited about that one. It's a great orchestra down there, kind of on the West Coast between Sarasota and Naples. Yeah. But um, one of the benefactors there is also... Uh, setting up a golf outing for us <laughs> which i never never turn away I'm, I'm a big golfer that's when i'm not writing and you know being family and all that stuff i'm usually on the golf course somewhere um which is just a, a happy distraction for me so wonderful um yeah sean thanks so much for coming on i really appreciate it man uh just oh my I, pleasure so Tom. good to catch up with you and uh i i love your music so much and uh hopefully some other people, you know, just look up Sean's Shauna Lachlan, spelled L-O-U-G-H-L-I-N. Um, there you go. Look, look, look him, look him up on Pepper and order his music. Um, do you ever, do you ever do any guest conducting, like, uh, like uh, district bands or you know, anything like that? Yeah, or I did that a little bit. Or anything? I, I've, yeah, I haven't done it in a in a little bit of time. Uh, just because of my my orchestral conducting slate, but um, yeah, no, I've done some all states. I did Alabama, Delaware, uh, Georgia, yeah, Georgia, oh, neat, yeah, Georgia all state. So I've done some all states and all counties, et cetera, all districts. It, it just depends on schedule and availability and, and when it comes up. But yeah, I, I love doing that. I think I'm going to do one for our our local district here um in coming up in february oh, so good for you well that that's, that's good but that's game. another thing that people should definitely consider sean for yeah and i and in i've been doing some commission projects with schools in the syracuse area and tying them into my um, conducting schedule and travel schedule with syracuse so 
I have one coming up, um, actually two schools uh, this coming season that I'll be working with. And, and it's great because I'll, I'll come in and kind of have an initial chat with the kids, kind of get them all fired up about, you know, music for them. And then, you know, deliver the piece and then get a chance to work with them. And sometimes I'm able to be there for the premiere performance. But to me, the more um, important part is the process of learning it and, you know, digging in and, you know, what their part means to the bigger part of the piece. And, and you know, little questions like that and, and details like that, I think, is where the real learning happens. Not necessarily just, you know, coming in on a, <laughs> on a wagon and uh, conducting the premiere. So, yeah. But all good things. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Sean. I really appreciate it. You got it, Tom. Thanks for listening to the Everything Music Ed podcast. Be sure to check out future episodes as we talk to other educators from different teaching environments and cover areas of instruction such as concert band, jazz band, marching band, chorus, orchestra, general music, music tech, special needs, and much more. The theme music for the Everything Music Ed podcast is Jig, composed and arranged by Wally Minko. Jig is performed by Wayne Bergeron and can be found on his album, Full Circle. The Everything Music Ed podcast logo was created by Sarah Goulart.